Section 7 of A Journey Round My Room by Xavier de Maistre Translated by Henry Atwell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 23 The Picture Gallery One word only upon our next engraving. It represents the family of the unfortunate Ugolino, dying of hunger. Around him are his sons. One of them lies motionless at his feet. The rest stretch their enfeebled arms towards him, asking for bread, while the wretched father, leaning against a pillar of his prison, his eyes fixed and haggard, his countenance immovable, dies a double death and suffers all that human nature can endure. And there is the brave Chevalier de Sass, dying by an effort of courage and heroism unknown in our days, under a hundred bayonets. And thou who weepest under the palm trees, poor negro woman, thou whom some barbarous fellow has betrayed and deserted, nay, worse, whom he has had the brutality to sell as a vile slave, notwithstanding thy love and devotion, notwithstanding the pledge of affection thou hast borne at thy breast. I will not pass before thine image without rendering to thee the homage due to thy tenderness and thy sorrows. Let us pause a moment before the other picture. It is a young shepherdess tending her flock alone on the heights of the Alps. She sits on an old willow trunk, bleached by many winters. Her feet are covered by the broad leaves of a tuft of cacalea, whose lilac blossoms bloom above her head. Lavender, wild thyme, the anemone, centauri, and flowers which are cultivated with care in our hothouses and gardens, and which grow in all their native beauty on the Alps, from the gay carpet on which her sheep wander. Lovely shepherdess, tell me where is the lovely spot thou callest thy home? From what far-off sheepfold didst thou set out at daybreak this morning? Could I not go thither and live with thee? But alas, the sweet tranquillity thou enjoyest will soon vanish. The demon of war, not content with desolating cities, will ere long carry anxiety and alarm to thy solitary retreat. Even now I see the soldiers advancing. They climb height after height as they march upwards towards the clouds. The cannon's roar is heard high above the thunderclap. Fly, O shepherdess, urge on thy flock, hide thee in the farthest caves, for no longer is repose to be found on this sad earth. Chapter 24 Painting and Music I do not know how it is, but of late my chapters have always ended in a mournful strain. In vain do I begin by fixing my eyes on some agreeable object. In vain do I embark when all is calm. A sudden gale soon drifts me away. To put an end to an agitation which deprives me of the mastery of my ideas, and to quiet the beating of a heart too much disturbed by so many touching images, I see no remedy but a dissertation. Yes, thus will I still my heart and the dissertation shall be about painting, for I cannot at this moment expatiate upon any other subject. I cannot altogether descend from the point I just now reached. 
Besides, painting is to me what Uncle Toby's hobby horse was to him. I would say a few words, by the way, upon the subject of preeminence between the charming arts of painting and music. I would cast my grain into the balance, were it but a grain of sand, a mere atom. It is urged in favour of the painter that he leaves his works behind him, that his pictures outlive him and immortalise his memory. In reply to this, we are reminded that musical composers also leave to us their operas and oratorios. But music is subject to fashion, and painting is not. The musical passages that deeply affected our forefathers seem simply ridiculous to the amateurs of our own day, and they are placed in absurd farces to furnish laughter for the nephews of those whom they once made to weep. Raphael's pictures will enchant our descendants as greatly as they did our forefathers. This is my grain of sand. Chapter 25 An Objection But what? said Madame de Hautecastel to me one day. What if the music of Cherubini or Cimarosa differs from that of their predecessors? What care I if the music of the past make me laugh, so long as that of the present day touch me by its charms? Is it at all essential to my happiness that my pleasures should resemble those of my great-grandmother? Why talk to me of painting, an art which is only enjoyed by a very small class of persons, while music enchants every living creature? I hardly know at this moment how one could reply to this observation which I did not foresee when I began my chapter. Had I foreseen it, perhaps I should not have undertaken that dissertation. And pray do not imagine that you discover in this objection the artifice of a musician, for upon my honour I am none. Heaven be my witness, and all those who have heard me play the violin. But, even supposing the merits of the two arts to be equal, we must not be too hasty in concluding that the merits of the disciples of painting and music are therefore balanced. We see children play the harpsichord as if they were maestri, but no one has ever been a good painter at twelve years old. Painting, besides taste and feeling, requires an amount of thoughtfulness that musicians can dispense with. Any day may you hear men who are well-nigh destitute of head and heart bring out from a violin or harp the most ravishing sounds. The human animal may be taught to play the harpsichord, and when it has learned of a good master, the soul can travel at her ease while sounds with which she does not concern herself are mechanically produced by the fingers. But the simplest thing in the world cannot be painted without the aid of the faculties of the soul. If, however, Anyone should take it into his head to ply me with a distinction between the composition and the performance of music. I confess that he would give me some little difficulty. Ah, oh, well, were all writers of essays quite candid, they would all conclude as I am doing. When one enters upon the examination of a question, a dogmatic tone is generally assumed, because there has been a secret decision beforehand, just as I, notwithstanding my hypocritical impartiality, had decided in favour of painting. But discussion awakens objections, and everything ends with doubt. 
Chapter 26 Raphael Now that I am more tranquil, I will endeavour to speak calmly of the two portraits that follow the picture of the shepherdess of the Alps. Raphael, who but thyself could paint thy portrait? Who but thyself would have dared attempt it? Thy open countenance, beaming with feeling and intellect, proclaims thy character and thy genius. To gratify thy shade, I have placed beside thee the portrait of thy mistress, whom the men of all generations will hold answerable for the loss of the sublime works of art which has been deprived by thy premature death. When I examine the portrait of Raphael, I feel myself penetrated by an almost religious respect for that great man who, in the flower of his age, excelled the ancients, and whose pictures are at once the admiration and the despair of modern artists. My soul, in admiring it, is moved with indignation against that Italian who preferred her love to her lover, and who extinguished at her bosom that heavenly flame, that divine genius. Unhappy one, knewest thou not that Raphael had announced a picture superior even to that of the Transfiguration? Didst thou not know that thine arms encircled the favourite of nature, the father of enthusiasm, a sublime genius, a divinity? While my soul makes these observations, her companion, whose eyes are attentively fixed upon the lovely face of that fatal beauty, feels quite ready to give her the death of Raphael. In vain my soul upbraids this extravagant weakness. She is not listened to at all. On such occasions a strange dialogue arises between the two, which terminates too often in favour of the bad principles, and of which I reserve a sample for another chapter. And if, by the way, my soul had not, at that moment, abruptly closed the inspection of the gallery, if she had given the other time to contemplate the rounded and graceful features of the beautiful Roman lady, my intellect would have miserably lost its supremacy. And if, at that critical moment, I had suddenly obtained the favour bestowed upon the fortunate Pygmalion, without having the least spark of genius which makes me pardon Raphael his errors, it is just possible that I should have succumbed as he did. Chapter 27 A Perfect Picture My engravings, and the paintings of which I have spoken, fade away into nothing at the first glance bestowed upon the next picture. The immortal works of Raphael and Correggio, and of the whole Italian school, are not to be compared to it. Hence it is that when I accord to an amateur the pleasure of travelling with me, I always keep this until the last as a special luxury. And ever since I first exhibited this sublime picture to connoisseurs and to the ignorant, to men of the world, to artists, to women, to children, to animals even, I have always found that spectators, whoever they might be, show each in his own way, signs of pleasure and surprise so admirably as nature rendered therein. And what picture could be presented to you, gentlemen? 
What spectacle, ladies, could be placed before your eyes more certain of gaining approval than the faithful portraiture of yourselves? The picture of which I speak is a mirror, and no one has as yet ventured to criticise it. It is to all who look on it a perfect picture, in depreciation of which not a word can be said. You will at once admit that it should be regarded as one of the wonders of the world. I will pass over in silence the pleasure felt by the natural philosopher in meditating upon the strange phenomena presented by light as it reproduces upon that polished surface all the objects of nature. A mirror offers to the sedentary traveller a thousand interesting reflections, a thousand observations which render it at once a useful and precious article. Ye whom love has held or still holds under his sway, Learn that it is before a mirror that he sharpens his darts and contemplates his cruelties. There it is that he plans his manoeuvres, studies his tactics, and prepares himself for the war he wishes to declare. There he practises his killing glances and little affectations and sly poutings, just as a player practises with himself for spectator before appearing in public. A mirror, being always impartial and true, brings before the eyes of the beholder the roses of youth and the wrinkles of age, without calumny and without flattery. It alone among the counsellors of the great invariably tells them the truth. It was this recommendation that made me desire the invention of a moral mirror, in which all men might see themselves with their virtues and their vices. I even thought of offering a prize to some academy for this discovery, when riper reflections proved to me that such an invention would be useless. Alas, how rare it is for ugliness to reorganise itself and break the mirror. In vain are looking-glasses multiplied around us which reflect light and truth with geometrical exactness. As soon as the rays reach our vision and paint us as we are, Self-love slips its deceitful prism between us and our image, and presents a divinity to us. And of all the prisms that have existed since the first that came from the hands of the immortal Newton, none has possessed so powerful a refractive force, or produced such pleasing and lively colours, as the prism of self-love. Now, seeing that ordinary looking-glasses record the truth in vain, and that they cannot make men see their own imperfections, every one being satisfied with his face, what would a moral mirror avail? Few people would look at it, and no one would recognise himself. None, save philosophers, would spend their time in examining themselves. I even have my doubts about the philosophers. Taking the mirror as we find it, I hope no one will blame me for ranking it above all the pictures of the Italian school. Ladies, whose taste cannot be faulty, and whose opinion should decide the question, generally upon entering a room let their first glance upon this picture. A thousand times have I seen ladies, I and gallants too, forget at a ball their lovers and their mistresses, the dancing and all the pleasures of the fate, to contemplate with evident complacence this enchanting picture, and honouring it even, from time to time, 
in the midst of the liveliest quadrille with a look. Who then can dispute the rank I accord to it among the masterpieces of the art of Apelles? End of section 7